The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I have a number of things to say, so I'm going to kind of move to some things quickly. What I want to emphasize to some degree is that we are Christ's witnesses. And we go into a broad world. A lot of what was at this particular conference, those of you that are just visiting the, this morning or whatever, I had the great privilege, and I'll talk about it in a minute, minute of going with my wife to uh, the C.S. Lewis Foundation gathering at Oxford University. And we were there about, oh, 11 days, something like that. And Melanie and I do something called work study. We work for uh, the foundation to uh, kind of prepare the way for telling people uh, about uh, the love of Christ, and particularly in this, this one, how to interface with our friends that maybe we're not in agreement with all the time, but how to be just so loving and so warm and so open with them that at least we'll gain a hearing. And that's what the Lord Jesus does. He comes into sometimes hostile situations and presents himself, and they can take that read, his message, they can take that and, if they want, his power to both heal and to save. And so that's kind of what we were immersed in for 11 days. Melanie and I will talk. The, um, let me read to you from Mark, the sixth chapter. That's where we are. I'm only going to do six verses. Then what we're going to do, they're, they're already flashing up some things here. So I'll comment, that's us. Uh, Melanie has already given me instructions. I, I might as well hit that for a second. It, in the, um, that's at Oxford. Uh, the, uh, she wanted me to mention that we are doing a, an Inklings conference on November 4th. I think it's through 6th. I didn't put that down. But you can keep your eyes uh, on. We invite in uh, certain people who are expert in the subject uh, say of apologetics or uh, 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 the inklings. This is a, a kind of a radical group of believers or those that discuss the great things about a supernatural world involved somehow enmeshed in a natural world. And, and they were just wonderful, interesting people. And of course, the most notable two in the group of inklings was J.R.R. Tolkien. And we know uh, him from <laughs> the movies he made, right? Yeah, he didn't make them. We all know that. But the books he wrote about hobbits and things like that somehow have, have captured the fascination of the world. The world. There's hardly anyone that doesn't know about this. And also Lewis's works, which, which were children's works and other things. And they've had an influence. They've had an impact. Hence, I'm there in uh, Oxford, England, talking to people about that. For what purpose? So that I can grow in faith and knowledge and wisdom, we hope. But that really isn't my goal. It is to make people comfortable in that environment and to send them home full of Faith, full of the glory of God. Jesus sent out people in twos. We know that. Isolation is not good for any of us. I have a, a marriage partner. She is my best friend. My children can back me up on this. She's everything to me. Don't get me crying early in the service here. The bottom line is she's not here today because she's feeling a little under the weather. And I'll be talking about her. So what I'm saying is, listen to this passage, Mark 6, 1. He went away from there, 
There is the uh, places that he had been the, where he was doing mighty works, healings, the uh, recovery of people who were bound in darkness, dark forces had captured them. But he was in the a business of setting people free from dark urges and dark entities. And he came to his own home. We know that he was from Nazareth, uh, which was not uh, uh, now on the Sea of Galilee. It was where he came from. And, and the suspicion is that he was there till he was 30 years old. And in, in preparing for this, the idea some have had is he was in Nazareth for so long and came out at a certain time, partly because certainly uh, the plan of God was the main thing, but to take care of his family. He was the oldest child. We know that he was born of a virgin, uh, a mighty overshadowing of her in a way that is so mysterious and so preposterous, but it's at the same time so magnificent that we cannot wrap our minds around it. And then these other children come out, and we'll very lightly touch on them in this passage. But the main point is he grew up in this town. He went away there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, he's aware of that he is an offense in his very purpose, because his claims are preposterous unless they're true. A prophet, he says to them, understanding his situation, and the negative vibes, if you will, he's getting from some of his listeners, says a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about them, about among the villages, teaching. You know, in uh, John, First uh, John uh, 1, uh, 6 through 13, it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the power to become the children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God. We see a duality here. Wherever Jesus goes, there's both controversy and wonder. He's rejected in his hometown. When I was going through my many courses on evangelism, personal evangelism, this is kind of just the way God made me and it's the way he led me. There was one illustration that stuck with me very carefully. It's the red light, green light, uh, uh, orange light thing, not in that order perhaps. But when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, our job is just to love them. 
Our job is to say what he leads us to say as led by his spirit and let him do the work. We can't do the work. We can convert no one. This is the hopeful part of this passage for those of us that actually are out there on the streets doing whatever. And I don't mean literally the streets. I mean the highways and byways of life. And Jesus is there. And this is the important point of the whole first thing. Jesus is the one doing the work here. And he's rejected by his own family. Now, when I came to Christ, I'd grown up in the church. I had become an evangelical atheist, meaning I, I had no faith in anything from what I had seen in my particular religious life and in my own heart, which was darker than two, two, uh, two, two shoes down a wolf's belly. And I, uh, I, I stepped away from everything, and my little act of defiance was to tell my parents that I would not go and take communion anymore because I didn't believe any of it. And this had disturbing them. I disturbed them on the one side of the ledger. And then after giving my life to Christ because of his irrefutable presence, power, and his change in my life, they were also bothered because the difference in me was radical and it was different and it was noticeable and I still had many problems and many delusions and many confusions, but Bill has changed and they're watching it all, you know, and what's going on here? What's going on? Well, in this town, they'd known Jesus. He's just a, a guy out there on the street. And, and their comments here can be construed this man. Where did he get these, these things? Where, did, where was this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Note that word, the carpenter. There's some, use this as a put down. This is just some blue-collar guy. He's out there. His dad's probably gone by this time. His father's dead. He's been raising his family. He's been helping his mother out. And he's a carpenter. This is no intellectual. This is not a rabbi. This is not a priest. Or so they thought. And they also say something that perhaps is snuck in here. Some believe that when he says, is this not the carpenter, they then quickly include the son of Mary, you know, they don't say the son of Joseph. Interesting. Do they know something about his uh, birth? Uh, do they suspect that this is an illegitimate child? And he's just a working man? And after all, what good are they except to maybe nail a few boards and put together a few little things around the house? This is a lesser animal, a lesser personage. Perhaps for some, I overinterpret, but so do all the commentators. Where is this wisdom coming from? How are such mighty works done in his hand? And we have here what, back to my illustration, is a strong red light for him to communicate with them. It says something here that I think it's important for you to note. That uh, Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his people. And he could do no mighty work there. I just want to comment on there. God Almighty can do what he wants in any situation, according to his word, according to his uh, set of uh, structures in a, in a mind that is beyond our ability to comprehend. What is being said here is not that Jesus couldn't do anything in this situation, that the people were in control, but he refused to do anything to those who didn't want him. To use my illustration, this was not a green light where people are saying, yes, please pray for us. Yes, we accept your message. Yes, we hear you. We see you're full of love. And majestic things happen wherever you go. And it's not a, a yellow light either. It's not a caution light here. Slow down. Or perhaps it starts with a caution light. This is a red light. 
A lot of the people in his hometown don't want to hear it. Don't buy it. You're just this guy. You know, there was a famous uh, British man. He became famous, but he started out this way as he tells his story. His mom, he watched her as she wept and wept when she didn't have food to feed him as a child and his family. I guess his father had either left her or was dead. And he watched this happen, and he became very skilled as a workman. When you hear workmen in these passages, you're talking about somebody that can probably build anything. In that era, they, they did it all. This was a man who, we, we have a guy here named Mario Melgareo, who's like a genius in a sense. He really is. He has brothers that are professors in Germany, just so you'll know. So the, the, this guy in England came up, he's a workman, and he decided to run for a high office in London, England. And a woman that was at one of the times he spoke, uh, using perhaps the language of the common man, said, he's nothing but a workman in a very derogatory tone, as if that indicates inability to do much of anything. He's just a man of the people. And he responded, yes, ma'am, that's exactly what I am. I'm a man of the people, and that's why he got elected, and he was known for his courage and his integrity. Is Jesus known for courage? You bet he is. Is he known for integrity? You bet he is. But does everyone listen to him when he's talking? You know, there is a time to hold them, continue on in talking to somebody about the Lord, and there's a time to make a sweet exit. And that's when you sense the yellow light going to red. We are not there to offend. We are not there to dominate. We are not there to win the argument. We are there endued and empowered by a spirit beyond ourselves. And if the Lord Jesus could not reach every audience because in some mystical sense, in the secret councils of God, they have some choice, he steps away from certain communities. We're seeing this over and over, by the way. He goes and the miraculous happens, and he doesn't stay in the towns. He might, might leave disciples there. But he is trusting his father to handle what has begun with his preaching ministry and miracles. Jesus is not a simple carpenter. He is a universe builder. He is far beyond the, any knowledge or description that we can give him, and so are so many. So when we talk to people, we just need to love them and understand that a prophet, verse 4, is not without honor. Here Jesus is describing himself, just for starters, and we know he was much more than this, as a prophet. So he's already partway given away his game, hasn't he? I am sent from God. I have a message from God. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Expect fully that in the places you've worked, in the places where you've had a, perhaps a bad past, you're going to have a rough time somehow being heard in the short term. But over the long haul, I can remember being at a party with my dad there. And he said to me, after years of watching me, he said, Bill, go over and talk to that lady. He knew that it was a relative of his and that she had had a very hard life and made some devastating choices. And I had good news for him. I didn't tell him, but I already knew that she had changed because she had given her life to Jesus Christ so I didn't have to be the evangelist in that particular situation. But wondering whether my conversion was real, to commissioning me to go talk to people, 
that was a, a wonderful uh, green light. And the Lord Jesus, being with this crowd, he is not happy about the rejection of his word and his law. It says he marveled. He could do no mighty work there because of their attitudes, because they didn't want it. In a sense, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and he will not break down the door. He will not lock and bar and chain people in his opinions and views. He allows some kind of mystical freedom for people to make choices. And you have not done a bad presentation because you're being rejected. Oftentimes, you've done a powerful thing. And it is, yes, perhaps time simply to back out and say, it's been so nice to talk to you. I've said enough. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages preaching. He was a man sent from God. This rejection foreshadows Jesus' ultimate rejection, where he's rejected in Jerusalem and hung on a cross. It says in Mark, he could do no mighty work there. He will not force his miracles on the hostile and brutal individuals who want to kill him. Certainly not at this point. Later, we know what happens. You know, there was a man named C.S. Lewis. Uh, I didn't set my... Uh, does anybody know when we started? Was it 10, R roughly? Let's just say it was. I have no idea. The bottom line was Lewis had lost his mother uh, when he was a little boy. She had died of cancer. He had to watch her die. He was there with his dad, who was a very fine attorney and a big-hearted man. I love the guy. Lewis and him had problems. Lewis's brother, Warney, had problems with dad. Maybe that's part of the story. But they were broken at the loss of their mom. And you can imagine what that does to any fledgling faith in the heart of a child. If God is love, why did that happen? And so he grows up in this environment. He grows up somewhat alone. He goes off to war. At a certain pace, he is already a genius. He is already a scholarly individual. He has a love for words that is unbelievable. And he's off at war as Tolkien was, and they were both damaged by the war, terribly wounded, sick, sick and uh, uh, ter terrified, seeing things that no one should have to see, having dreams later for years and decades that no one should have to dream. And I know some of you in this room have had these kinds of things, and I just love you so much. And we all... <clears throat> appreciate what you've done. So he calls the 12 and begins to send them out two by two. Jesus is out to reach his world, but C.S. Lewis is one of the people he is out looking for. He's hunting through the very halls of academia to find this guy. Lewis comes back from the war, goes through all kinds of stuff, goes to school, does very, very well in school, but he has a darkened soul and, as he said, a zoo of lusts a zoo of, of weird thinking and strangeness, and yet he has made a vow to his a fellow soldier who died in the war, uh, uh, I think in the same explosion that Lewis was involved in, he had made a vow that he was going to take care of his mother, his family, if he died, and so he takes Mrs. Moore into his home and at some point his own brother and begins to care for them as he accepts a teacher's position, a, it's called a fellow's position at Oxford. He's done well there, but over the years, he was so good as he came to faith in Christ, and I can't do much with that. You know, Brendan, if you could shoot up that shot going to, maybe we should do some Oxford shots if you could put them up there. He's there on that trail. It's called Addison's Trail. It was at night. 
He has been wrestling with the idea of faith. No one wrestles like this man. He was arguably the greatest apologist in the English language in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I've told you before, he was the radio voice other than Winston Churchill in in England. And he brought a message uh, 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 that you can read in the book Mere Christianity, a simple way to make the case for a God who loves and a Christ who cares. And it began to revolutionize people and revivify their faith even after the darkness of war. But he was not a prophet in his hometown, and this is why I bring this up. He was passed over as a professor to be a main guy at Oxford many times. Although he was an extremely popular, popular tutor and lecturer, he was not given the job of a full professor at Oxford, and lesser lights were. Every indication was that he was not promoted. No, a man is not a prophet in his hometown because of the Christian message that he delivered. This seemed in some sense, I guess, anti-intellectual, but perhaps it's, it's worse than that. C.S. Lewis would have as many as 400 kids come to his lecturers anytime he stood up and spoke. No one people would have one person come to their lecture, or five. His presence was so magnetic, his, his delivery and the things he had to say were so powerful and went to the heart in such a certain way that it changed people. And not only that, he wrote, he was fool enough to wrote, write little books for children that influenced the way they saw the world in a certain sense. And uh, apologetical books like The Problem of Pain and other things which enabled people to see perhaps God's purposes in their world. And what happens is people in his academic environment, in a sense, hated him and were jealous of him. This is what was happening to the Lord Jesus. It's what happens to us in interactions with some. Not all, but with some. And so Lewis is shackled, in a sense, professionally. He loses thousands of pounds of money uh, uh, at his university because he doesn't get the job. And ultimately, the a- a- end of this particular story is his friend Tolkien, as I remember it, and I indistinctly, is able to finagle a full professorship for Lewis at Cambridge. Lewis was so popular in some circles that they desperately wanted him. And, and ultimately, we find that he uh, returns to Oxford in uh, great pomp and ceremony in a certain sense. But what we need to know is that when we go to our friends and especially our families, we need to understand that if we suffer a little bit there or in our workplace, we share in Christ's sufferings. It doesn't mean you're doing wrong. It doesn't mean you're doing a bad job or you're a bad Christian. I've failed in the workplace. I've been terrible. I've been inconsistent. But in large parts, the Lord has been gracious to me and enabled me to do okay. While we were at Oxford, fire up some other pictures there, uh, Brendan, or whoever, if you can. I don't, uh, that is uh, what C.S. Lewis thought was the most beautiful building in the world. You, I, you can see the complexity of it, and uh, uh, fire up another one. This is the kind of thing we got to see. That's the Rad, Radcliffe camera. I think I have that right. It's part of what's called the Bodleian Library, which is one of the finest Uh, libraries in the world. You'll see it in all these detective mysteries, and that's just a a tiny part of it. It has a world of books. Another one, if you please. That 
Melanie used for one of her books. I'm not selling books. I'm just telling you that little red door. In a sense, I think she thought it, it represented a, a, a path to something more and to something better, to, to this holy experience with the Lord Jesus. And the only way we can enter into relationship with him, and this is a theological point, is through his blood, through sacrifices made, a sacrifice made by him to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and prepare a place for us, which he offers us as a free gift. What I want to do this morning is encourage every believer in this room to draw so close to Jesus that he is kind enough to impart to you some instructions for your life personally. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that C.S. Lewis heard him. And on Addison's walk, as the leaves fell and the wind blew, that was a picture of the Holy Spirit of God speaking. My wife was about seven years old or in her elementary school years when some teacher or adult talked to her about England. And I guess about knights and stuff. And Melanie started writing about these kinds of things. And uh, she had a strange interest, a, a, a powerful interest as a little Christian girl in a Christian family in the British Empire and its language, its writings. And she wedded in a supernatural way in her heart to her future. In seventh grade, she told her grandmother that she had a dream, that, a dream that uh, she wanted to be fulfilled, and that was to go to England. And she began to save money when she was about 12 years old. Now, that's an act of faith. Perhaps it could be an act of presumption. Well, she was reading a book uh, many years later as a mom with many children and, 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 and who had visited England but really hadn't been able to stay there and rest there and go through the, the towering spires of that particular city and be inspired and really move in, in what she thought might be a call in her life. And she read a book by a man whose name was Nigel Goodwin, who was a British actor on their main stage, and he had given his life to Jesus Christ in a powerful way. And he said, God, I want to go to seminary and be trained, and, but I have no money. And long story short, a woman comes to his door, knock, 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 Come in, says, the Lord has spoken to me to pay for your whole theological education. I'm going to support you in it. Melanie's in a car as I can, uh, uh, and, and read that, and she was so moved by it because she had no money to go anywhere. But this thing about England and theology and Jesus were all tangled together in a web in her heart that had started as a child, and she prayed, and she said, God... If you want me to go, what you did for Nigel, do for me. And some of you know the story. Marilyn White and others came alongside her without knowing anything, nothing, and, and heard about this conference in 1998. I think that was the first main conference in England at Cambridge and Oxford where Christians were going to gather some potential presidential candidates, all kinds of people from all over the world to hear about the love of God in Christ and about these crazy inklings and these letter writers and artists and filmmakers and all this stuff. And they gave her the ability to go over there. Well, fast forward to today. Melanie, when I went there and got there with her, I'm, I'm, I'm not really part of the game. Uh, she, she, it's, it's her show. My job was to wait on people. I was someone that pointed them the way to classes and did certain things. But Melanie, for years, has been their primary tour guide for Oxford. God fulfilled that green, green, dream. She met all kinds of people that changed her and inspired her. You know, she wrote a lot of books, and I'm not going to get into that, but just to give you the idea of what was there as I conclude. There's a guy there named Jack Redmond. 
that's a friend of Melanie's, and they got together, and this, this happened constantly. It happens constantly. They just start weeping with the friendship they built over many years of her going over there and serving this particular group with her unique set of gifts. Jack Redman is a godly man. He came out of a certain religious background that he thankfully rejected and began to follow Jesus in the arts world, not only the arts world, but in the film world. And what I loved, what I saw about was a gentility and spirit you really can't believe. Jack is a musician of world-class letter, arranger, orchestrator, and conductor of concert chamber and choral music and film. He had done 500 episodes of television, including multiple seasons of the, the show Coach and St. Elsewhere. He composed scores for the trip to Bountiful, the Newsies, Mighty Ducks 2 and 3, well, there's a big hitter, and, hold your breath, The Little Mermaid. Finally, uh, there, there, there are others, uh, the paper is full of them, but one I love to hear, he did the uh, orchestration for the James Bond film, Skyfall. He is Christ's man. He goes places and writes things that change people's lives and hearts, and every time Melanie would hear his music, she would begin to weep with gratitude and thanksgiving for what God did, does and did through that man. I was there at this thing. There was a man there. He was six foot four. He was slavishly and smilingly serving everybody around. There were hundreds of people at this thing, and uh, I walked up to him and asked him some questions as I will. My, my, you know, I'm an extrovert. I just am. I love people. I love to go after them. I love asking them crazy questions. And I said, T tell me something about your background. Basically, former naval officer. There it is. That's right. Naval Academy. That didn't surprise me. And a godly man who had gone through some tough stuff after he served doing certain dangerous things in the Navy. And he'd utterly, he was an utterly devoted Christian to the extent that the man who was supposed to run this whole giant thing had had a stroke, had fallen apart, and Chris White was asked to take over. Young man, he wasn't prepared for this, although he'd been around the conference for years in his, in his off times. You have seldom in your life met a more loving and decent and charitable man. Just to be around him was to be in the presence of a real Christian, in the presence of Jesus. There was a woman there that did the music. She had been thrown at the end too. No experience uh, in terms of doing this particular musical position. She was dealing with people who did not know music well. Any coach, any musician that worth his salt would be enraged at the incompetence of the people singing and what was going on. But she was Jesus' person, and she electrified them with never having one negative word to say as she enabled them to sing together and bring glory to God through their music. This kind of thing was happening all over. I don't know why, but we were in the big leagues with the little league players. They were unbelievable. That's, here's why I'm saying it, that's who you are. That's who you are. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God, all things are possible to you, and having the ability to listen to the tender and real voice of the Holy Spirit of God, as Melanie did, it changes your world. If you're a carpenter listening, it changes your world. That man that ran for office became the head of large parts of London, known and admired historically in that wondrous land. This guy... A former Mormon 
gives his life to Christ and he becomes this radically committed Christian who is putting out his film music and changing his world more with his attitude and fundamental goodness brought on by the Spirit of God working within him. He is a prophet in his land. He won't be accepted everywhere. Neither will Chris or the girl I described to you, Amber, or Melanie, or Bill, or you. But you, as an army of people, tenderly and gently listening, there is a two-way relationship. I conclude with this. You may not be a prophet in every situation. You may be a prophet, but people won't necessarily hear you. But know and believe the things you hear from the Lord, the things you bring to people's house, they're watching, they're waiting, they're wondering. It's in them. Your genetic pool is linked to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the great expositor, the genius of all geniuses, C.S. Lewis, rejected by his culture and his friends, expanded his ministry through that rejection. What is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus saying to you? Despise not, the Bible says, prophecies. That means that God speaks to us in some way. Be offended at the word prophecy. Never. There is a living God that speaks to his people. It is not simply a dry intellectual exercise in the quiet of your room, on your knees, reading the Bible. It's more than that. It is being guided by the Holy Spirit in the Bible as you're in it to affect your world through what it tells you, what it queries you with, what it changes you with, and he will give you the fuel, the money, the resources to do what he has created you to do. And you were created for something. Let there be no mistake about that. It may be a mother, you may be a cop, you may be a fireman, but you were made for more than the simple job title you have acquired. You were made for greatness, the same greatness that dwelled in Jesus Christ because he dwells in, in you. So let's bow our heads and pray. I'm done. Lord, all things are possible with you. In my name, in my name, they shall do this and that and the other thing. Change is the only constant. Let your salvation come upon this people. Let multitudes be affected by people who are listening very tenderly and gently to your voice. Help them to know when the green light is and the red light is and the yellow light. Help them, I pray. Bless this thy people in Jesus' name, amen.